Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-478 of the Run Run Live podcast. So, <laughs> I had some leftover content from version 4.0 of the podcast, and while I'm figuring out what I want to do going forward, I figure I might as well drop it. I want to give you an update on how my summer is, my summer off is going as well. Summer vacation. So I've got a, a leftover interview here that I'm going to share with you with Alan. I'm still working on what version 5.0 of the show is going to be. You'll have to stay tuned for that. I think I still have something to say, but you know, not a lot of it's about running these days, so I got to be careful. Last time I air quotes ran was in April of this year. So we're going on 18, 20 months uh, no, 18 months with the the injured knee. That was March of, what, 2020, maybe, that I popped that? Was that 2021? I don't know. So yeah, it was 2021. So I did manage in this last cycle to do some training, and I tried to do a run-walk training program based on the theory. I love this theory. This is one of my favorite theories is if I go really easy on the injury, it, it's just going to get better, and I can train into healing. This is the active recovery theory. And it's worked sometimes in the past for me. It worked with the plantar fasciitis. Not so much with the knee, though. Uh, that theory did not work this spring. I did manage a 20-mile, this was my high water mark, was a 20-mile walk-run uh, at the peak here, but my knee was super sore, and it was obvious to me that it was all going in the wrong direction. So that was that was a bit depressing, and I kind of had a down period there. And I think you probably sensed that back in April, um, right when I stopped doing the po podcast. So I dropped to the half marathon at the Flying Pig because we had already made the reservations, me and the gang, and we limped through it. I ran with Dave Foss. It was fun. We had a great time. And then after that, I just shut the running down completely. I was like, yep, learn your lesson, buddy. So, but I need something to do, and it's summertime, and I can ride my bike, so that's what I've been doing. And I'll give you my current workout schedule for the uh, the big event today, the big event I'm training for. I'll give you a post on that today. The last time I lost this much time to injury was the infamous plantar fasciitis episode in 2011-2012. And I did come back from that eventually. But, you know, this feels a little bit different because, good or bad, you know, I'm turning 60 this year. And one of my challenges is going to be finding a way to stay healthy, right? You just don't bounce back as well. And some of these injuries are permanent injuries, right? Guys in my age group, they're, you know, if they're not battling prostate cancer, they're out getting their hips and their knees replaced. So, you know, I got to find that balance, that that way to stay healthy and physically active without pushing so damn hard all the time that I'm going to break myself. So there's a there's a fulfillment I need to find there, a balance. And I've always been this way. <laughs> I remember even when I started to run in, in high school, I loved the training. I loved the training. I loved being out with the team, but I hated the racing. So throughout my marathon days, I always loved the training. I lived for the training. And the races were just, you know, a convenient stake in the ground for me. 
necessary, but not really important. The training is what kept me alive, kept me, gave me something to focus on, kept me sane. So that's what I'm looking to get back to. And I think this is going to be at least part of my theme going forward with the podcast. How to stay engaged when you're getting a little bit older and you've done it all. So in section one today, I'm going to talk about being a good ender. In section two, I'll talk about some of the things I'm doing, these interesting things I'm doing with my bicycle. And the interview is Alan, who is the guy who got arrested (laughs) for running, which I don't know. I don't really buy that, but you can listen to it and make your own judgment. Hope you're enjoying your summers, or if you're in that other hemisphere, your winters, on with the show. So, I've been doing a lot of cycling, and I want to share what I've learned from my cycling this summer, and in particular, what it's like to transition from being a marathoner or an ultra runner and doing that kind of training to cycling training. And it's pretty good, actually, once you get into the rhythm of it, once you start getting in shape. So what am I doing? I am training for an event that I made up because I find that made-up events are my personal favorites. When you make up an event, it has to be something interesting. It has to be something challenging that forces you to train, but at the same time, it should be achievable. I like events that are pointless and stupid as well. It fits my personality. So the event I have made up is a transit of Massachusetts, the state I live in. Massachusetts, being a small New England state, is not really that big. But it's big enough that I can squeeze about 250 miles into it. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to start in the upper top left corner of Massachusetts and ride all the way to the tip of Cape Cod. The tip of Cape Cod is a place called Race Point Lighthouse, and that's my that's my target. And it's a convenient target for me, A, because there's this long stretch of rail trail on the Cape that I can follow, I'm familiar with, and B, I have a house about halfway out on the Cape that I can recover in. Now, there is an existing event that follows a similar, shorter route called the Pan Mass Challenge, and I have no interest whatsoever in riding the Pan Mass Challenge. It's a corporate event. You have to raise like 10 or 15 grand in charity money. Hey, more power to you folks. I'm not dissing you, but it's not my cup of tea. Not my kettle o fish, as they say. Who says that? I don't know. Somebody who has a lot of fish? About five weeks from now, August 19th, ish. (laughs) I will launch myself from somewhere near Williamstown, Massachusetts, and take two days to cycle the 250 miles or so to the tip of Cape Cod. So the first question you should have is, does that math work? Or if you're British, do the maths work? Well, I know I can ride 100 miles in a day. I've done that a bunch of times. And if I stay on the bike and don't mess around, I can easily do that on roads in under 10 hours. You know, 125 miles, yeah, that puts me in a 12-hour day. I figure if I'm on the road by 6 a.m., I should be off the bike by 6 p.m. That's a long day, but it's incredibly doable, 
I mean, it's only 10 miles an hour. I should be able to do better than that. Now, I own two bicycles. The first is my old steel road bike, Fujisan, that has gotten me through several successful triathlon cycles. She's old, she's heavy, she's Frankensteined, but with a good tune-up, I can push that bike to 20 miles an hour. The second bike, though, is my Motobicane 29er mountain bike. That has gotten me through several ultra-distance mountain bike races. If I'm heads down, cranking on that thing, pushing it on the road, I maybe can push it up around 17, 18 miles an hour. And ironically, they both weigh about the same. I think the mountain bike might actually be lighter. I have decided to ride the motorbicane of these two. I'm going to give up the speed. Because our roads here can be, yeah, let's use the term treacherous. And I think I would end up getting a lot of flats and potentially die if I rode my Fuji. And the Fuji is also a lot less forgiving if you get, like, chased off the road by traffic. The Niner is also way more comfortable to ride, especially in the bumpy sections, which we have a lot of. And if I get run off the road on the Niner, it's no big deal. I'm not going to crash. I'll just ride a little bit in the grass and then get back on the road. To make things a little bit easier for me, I bought my Niner a set of small block tires. So small block means they don't have those big, aggressive knobbies tread that you would normally see on mountain bikes so these tires they roll a lot faster and they're immune to the gravel and the road debris i also bought a pair of clip-on aero bars aero bars are a godsend on a long ride not so much getting down in that position to avoid the wind and and cut the wind resistance although that helps you know two or three percent makes a lot over 12 hours But really, to be able to rest, rest your arms and shoulders and take some of the weight off your ass. And I was, I've been used, I just got them and I've done two long rides in them. And I'm super surprised at how much faster I can get a long ride done with the aero bars. And my training over the last few weeks has been, oh, you know, six or seven workouts a week. Three or four of those are rides and the rest are strength and stretching not dissimilar from a marathon or an ultra plan. I do back-to-back rides on the weekends. Saturdays are my long rides, and I do back-to-backs to simulate those, you know, riding on tired legs, just like you would in an ultra. My thighs are getting massive, like a rhinoceros, and I feel pretty fit, although I'm not, I'm still overweight because the cycling just doesn't burn the same number of calories. Uh, there are some differences in cycling, other differences, cycling versus running. First, cycling is just easier. My heart rate never gets anywhere near where it would if I was out running for that long, even if I'm pushing. Uh, Second, I can eat and drink almost anything while I'm riding. It doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about keeping it down or getting sick or any of that GI stuff. It's just easier. Uh, Third, you you can carry way more stuff. And it doesn't, you don't have to worry about it bouncing around. So I wear my water bladder on my back. I've got my tools. I've got a pump. I've got a water bottle. I've got my phone. I got the earbuds. You know, you can hang all this shit on you when you're riding and you don't have to worry about it bouncing around. Fourth, the heat, when it gets hot out, I'm not a hot weather runner, but on the bike, it's just not that much of a factor. You can ride in pretty hot weather because the air from the speed keeps you cool. 
and the sweat evaporates. You have to watch the hydration, obviously, but it's not, you don't get the same sort of um, overheating effect. And on maybe the negative side, if you want to put it that way, the first thing would be that you are dependent on your machine, unlike running the other, you know, your actual machine, your bike. You have to take care of your bike. And this adds more time to the whole training in general. The bike training just takes more time in general. There's more stuff to deal with. The routes, secondly, the routes are a much longer than a running route. So even my short rides are 20 miles. And it's logistically challenging to find nearby, safe, and appropriate routes for all this training. A third thing would be that there's different types of challenges when you go, when you get long enough. One, I'll give you an example. I was wearing my gel half gloves to keep my hands from getting sore, but I sweat inside the gloves and it was making the skin peel off my hands. So I had to stop wearing gloves. Uh, When you get to a certain point, there still is a concern with chafing, but it's in different places than you would normally get it in running. And unfortunately, I have to learn where those places are as I trade to that point. So a little bit of chafing there. And finally, I can't take the dog with me, which is a bummer. That's a bummer for Ollie. It's a bummer bummer for me. I love running with Ollie. Well, not so much with Ollie. He's a maniac. But it is always good to have running partners. So some good news is that a three- or four-hour ride, now that I'm getting in shape, is a pretty good calorie burn and a pretty good endorphin hit. It's not as good as running, but pretty good if you're grinding away. For those three, four hours, you're getting some you're getting some benefit there. And it also gives me those long alone time thinking sessions to listen through some podcasts and do some thinking. And believe it or not, there's there's such a thing as form when you talk about bicycle riding, right? And it's the equivalent of form in running. In biking, when you're clipped in, those that form becomes very important, especially for long distances. You have to have it right or you'll get knee pain and cramps and that sort of thing. You can't just push the pedals like you did when you were a kid. You have to use the full stroke. So you have to shoot your toes forward and over the top and then pull them back through the bottom. It's a full stroke. It's an even full stroke where both legs are always working throughout the whole stroke on both sides to produce that nice, consistent power. So that's my current project. And at the end of the summer, I'll be pushing my big old mountain bike across the face of Massachusetts. What could go wrong? Ideas shared are better than things because they are timeless. They burrow into our consciousness like warm puppies and change us sometimes for the better all right alan how are we doing today good how are you doing great so uh why don't you give us the the 200 words on who you are and what you do so my name is alan mcdougall i'm the director of educational technology at the university of new haven i've been in it for about 25 years and I do triathlon and running, so mostly Ironman. How many full Ironmans have you done? I'm on 18. I'm trying to get to 20. That's great. I mean, that's a commitment. It is. I always say that anybody can do it. And I mean, obviously, you know, within limits, but, you know, I'm a pretty average human being. Yeah. And that was always the thing. You know, I never doubted that I could complete an Ironman, 
it was just looking at the training schedule going, I just don't, I don't know where I'm going to find the time to to put myself in a position to respect it, right? Well, you know, fortunately, I just have one kid and um, my wife's also an Ironman athlete. You know, when you're with somebody else who understands the commitment and the training and you take, you know, sometimes we take turns, one person will do a race one year and the other person won't, or we'll do the same race. We've tried different flavors to figure out, you know, what still works within a family. And like, we just came back from Disney for a week. So, you know, we also realized that you can't, everything can't be about the sport. Yeah. Just with the, uh, with the bike, you got to put some hours in, right? There's no way around the hours. And it's just a, it's a time commitment, whether you're spinning or, or out on the road, it's just a time commitment. Um, yeah. Fortunately, I get up at 5 a.m. So <laughs> you get up and do your spin in the morning. Yeah. 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 In the dark, in the cold, but yeah. in the basement. Yeah. That's, that's how it works, right? That's how you're successful. It's get up early, get it done. Then you're a zombie at night, unless you're one of those blessed people who only need four hours of sleep a night. That's me. That's you? All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to get to bed. 12.05 is my drop dead stop time at night. And then, you know, 5.10 in the morning is my uptime. Yeah. And uh, so you made a choice of uh, either ruling the world or doing Iron Man with that extra eight hours that you get yeah. over the rest of us. Okay. Good choice. So you and I were uh, were talking on Twitter. People still use Twitter, and uh, you were telling me you had a great story about uh, about running. So you want to give us all the gory details? Take your time. Tell the story. Imagine you're in an Irish pub, right? Everybody's had a couple, and you say, "Wait, wait, wait! I got a story for you." So it was a uh, it was a cold February day, and- a dark and stormy night. That's right, except it was daytime, fortunately. <laughs> um, and my boss had actually just had kind of a heart issue, so he was out. So, you know, I mean, I'm really diligent about my job, but I also needed to start getting in some longer runs because I was training for a marathon. So I blocked out about 75 minutes for my run at lunch. I'd get an hour, you know, I was going to squeeze it a little bit because I'd gotten in early. And I go out and I start running, and um, the campus is sort of adjacent to New Haven. So if you run for any distance, you're, it's a mix of city streets, suburban. Um, and I got on more of a city street layout and went to go through an intersection and a woman who was making a right on red didn't stop as I was, you know, coming across, basically forced me up on the sidewalk. And as I think about it now, I put my foot out to protect myself. But certainly what it looked like is that I just did a sidekick into the uh, one of the door panels on the car, right? So, and I did damage the door. It had to be replaced. So I guess I kicked it pretty hard. <laughs> but now that I'm a Taekwondo black belt, I can say it's, you know, my skills as, a, as an athlete. But at the time, you know, Taekwondo wasn't even a thought in my head. So I just kept running. I was like, you know, this is one of these things that happens. And um, she turned a car around and started to chase me. And it's kind of an interesting chase because you're on one side of the road and the car's on the other side of the road. And I'm running, you know, six minute miles. So she's driving 10 miles an hour. And I can hear her on whatever type of cell phones they had 20 years ago. She called 911. And the first time they hung up on her and then she got got somebody again. And, and I kind of crossed over from like one town to the other from, uh, I think from West Haven into New Haven. 
and I'm running along and like traffic is backing up behind her. There's school buses because half day kindergarten is getting out. I'm like, you know, this is going to turn into one of those really dangerous traffic situations. So I figured I could lose her by cutting across uh, somebody's yard. So I cut through some yards and I got to a chain link fence and I jumped the fence. And where do I end up? I end up on Yale University's athletic fields. So I'm running down across the soccer field and I actually had played soccer there. So I, I was familiar with where I was. I see this big cloud of dust, New Haven uh, police car comes down this dirt path. And I stopped. I mean, what do you do when you see the cops? You, you stop, right? And I was <laughs> almost to a swamp. If I'd gotten into the swamp, I would have basically gotten away, right? So I stop and I try to engage the officer. Well, he was not interested, didn't want to hear anything I had to say, put me in cuffs and put me in the back of the car. Did he make you get face down in the dirt? No, actually, I put my hands behind my back and he said, because you're being cooperative, we'll cuff you in the front, right? Which is, uh, you know, small comfort. But when you're actually seated in that plastic police bench, which is that back seat, being cuffed in the front, you're at least able to maintain your seated. You're not sliding all over the, the back yeah. of the car. So they pulled me up to where the other cars were and they interviewed the woman. And based on what she told them, they ticketed her for failure to yield right away, even though I wasn't allowed to say anything at all. Um, and I will say she was a professionally dressed woman driving a car. And, you know, I'm, I look like a scrub I'm in my running clothes. You know, it's, it's the middle of the winter. You've got tights on and, you know, a jacket and, so I get it that they didn't even want to engage with me about like what the course of events was. So I thought uh, they're going to take me down to the police station in the police car. And I was wrong. Um, instead, they roll up the paddy wagon, which is like a literal thing. It's like a white van. And they throw me in the back of the van. And for the next like hour and a half, I'm tooling around in New Haven as they pick other people up, right? They're picking people up on warrants and things like that. I watched these two people get into the back of the van. The guy's got drugs on him that they didn't find. So he's trying to shove it into like a crevice somewhere. So as I get out of the van, finally, like an hour and a half later or whatever it was, you know, I said to the cop who opened the door, I said, hey, you know, they deposited some drugs in the back of your van. Not exactly sure why I'm helping out at this point, but, you know, so you get thrown into basically what you would call the drunk tank, right? It's where they put right. all the, the holding cell. The holding cell has a toilet with no lid and like 18 people in it. So I just so what, kind of, what, what time of day is it now? So this is like middle of the afternoon, right? Yeah. So I, I just stood there. I didn't say anything. You know, I, my understanding from you know, people I know is the less you say, the better off you are. But I mean, it's it really kind of reinforced everything that I thought about some of the things that are wrong with the, the way the system works. You know, at one point, somebody used the toilet. Another person asked the guard that was behind the window to flush the toilet. The basic response was shut up, criminals. <laughs> like, we can't get a toilet flushed here. You know, I mean, it was just you don't really get a phone call either. There's this myth that you see on TV. You know, people get arrested, they get a phone call, you talk to your lawyer, all this stuff. 
the bail bondsman comes and asks you for contact information. And then maybe they make a phone call to that person. I gave him my wife's contact info. I then just stood there, uh, you know, about five thirty, six o'clock, they passed out bologna sandwiches. I don't eat meat. So I handed it to the guy next to me. I'm like, here, have this. And the bottom line is at like eight, eight thirty at night, they clean the holding cell out and they take anybody who's there to count them. So I happen to know a, a state trooper who's a friend of mine. And, you know, where the story gets good is this is my wife's birthday, right? So, <laughs> so we have reservations for a really fancy French restaurant in New Haven, you know, Union League Cafe. We're really excited about going there. I don't come home. She goes to the university and one of the security guards opens my door and my clothes are just on the chair. Like right. that's what I do yeah. with my clothes. You know, as I just leave them on the chair so they don't get all more wrinkled than they already are. Um, and he says to her, Oh, maybe he's having an affair. Okay. <laughs> this is her birthday, right. So, I mean, totally useless, but so what she did was she called our friend who's a state trooper and she said, Hey, can you make some calls and find out if he surfaced anywhere? And of course I was at one police plaza in New Haven. Uh, when he found that out, he said, Hey, you know, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure that he gets bailed out. I was about half an hour away from being scooped up out of there and sent to the County jail. No phone call. No, nobody would have known where I was now. You know, I'm lucky. I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a working professional. I've got a friend that's in law enforcement that's looking out for me. If I'm, say, a single dad working a job and I get picked up in that same situation, my kid's at daycare. You know, I don't show up to pick him up. I have no it, – it's like I yeah. can see where this really could be a, a game-changing moment in a really bad way for a person. Yeah, change somebody's you know? life. Yeah, it could change somebody's life and not not in a good way. So for for me, I like I said, I hate to say it, but it reinforced some of the things that that I'd already come to understand about the way the criminal justice system works. And you know, ironically, I work at a university where criminal justice is one of our, our strongest majors. So if you if you you your wife hadn't found you, how long would you have been in the system before you popped up? Could have been a couple of days, you know. And then nobody would have known where you were. Nobody would have known where I was. Yep. Think about that. <laughs> uh, soon you were arrested for something more serious than a ticketing offense. Yeah. So, well, what they eventually did was they decided that I trespassed, which Yale University dropped that. And then there was uh, misdemeanor damage to property. And the way that works is you pay, I had paid $250 of restitution and after 13 years, if you have no other marks on your criminal record, they nolly it. So, like, yeah. if you, you know, I can say I have no criminal record because if you look at it, there, there's nothing on it. Um, and I was really honest about it. Like, the day my boss came back, I immediately went to him and said, hey, you need to know that I was recently arrested. This is what I was charged with. This is, you know, this is what the result of it was. Because I think that you've got to be honest with an employer about that when something like that happens. But I think about the way that I handled it. And basically what I should have just said was I was trying to avoid the car and I had yeah. my leg out to protect myself. Yeah. Because ironically, something like this happened to me again. Um, yeah. 
No, yeah. I've been up on the hood of people's cars in that exact same situation. I was, I was running in a snowstorm in Brantford, where I live, which is a couple towns over from New Haven. I was on a road. Van comes towards me. I had to jump up on a snowbank because they didn't move around me, even though there was no other traffic. They just stuck to their line. I jumped up on a snowbank and I had to put my hand out on the van to steady myself. And I didn't hit it because I've had this other experience, right? Just put my hand out, tapped it a couple of times because I didn't want to fall in under the wheel of the van. 15 minutes later, as I'm running, cop car in the middle of a snowstorm tools up to me. Did you hit a white van? I'm like, no, I was on a snowbank, literally just trying. And to think that like your thought process is somebody touched my vehicle in these situations and I'm going to send a policeman out in the snow to chase down a runner who I didn't make any kind of an accommodation for. I was just like, I can't even believe the person did that. Yeah, you would think they'd be apologizing to you for almost killing you. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that, um, you know, and certainly COVID has made this worse. People are just so tense. You're in your own thing, too. And the first thing I do is I try to look at the situation and say, all right, well, you know, I'm out there running. I'm a little bit amped up. I've got the adrenaline going. Did I do something wrong? And Because I think you have to, if you're not asking that question, you're always going to be angry at other people for the well that's that's yeah that's the theory of accountability right that's right. the theory of, of extreme ownership right you always ask what could i do to make it better right but when you look at it and you say all right there's nothing i could have done differently here if you run if you bike people are going to be yelling at you out there you know yeah. and, and, and trying to kill you and yeah. trying to kill you and the thicker your skin is because yeah i mean we've seen some really tragic especially with cycling We've seen some tragic situations where people have basically intentionally hit cyclists. Yeah. And it's such a high speed collision, you know, and I, and I had a I had a 65 mile an hour collision with a car once. So I, I, I know how that works. You know, I had, yeah. a head on, I had a head on collision with a car where I made a traffic error and I fully admit it was my fault. And I either was going to get T-boned or hit the car head on. So I turned into the car and hit it head on to reduce the, the nature of the impact because I didn't want to end up under the car. Um, we all make mistakes, but yeah. when, you're on, when you're on a bike and somebody's out to hurt you, that your outcome is not going to be good. You know, you, you think in that, um, in the one where you got arrested, you think if you had stayed put and not kept running, it would have ended differently. Well, I think I needed to just jump up on the sidewalk and stop. Right. You know? And I think that's where, uh, Sometimes, like I was saying, when we're in that moment, we don't want to have to stop any more than the driver does. Now, the traffic laws were on my side. The person should have come to a complete stop at the stop sign and waited for me. I had the right of way. That said, dying with the right of way. Right. That's that's not what I want on my team. Yeah, that's always been my theory. It doesn't really pay to be right in those situations. Right. And, you know, sometimes um, just you just don't be aggressive, you know, let it go. So you yeah, got to let stop. it go. Resist the urge to slap somebody's hood because, yeah. like you said, everybody's so amped up right now um, that it just you don't know what's going on inside their head. You know, right. I, I look at it as if I have to touch a vehicle to move myself away from it, 
that's the point where I'm going to make contact because otherwise it's, yeah, as soon as you touch that vehicle, now you've, you know, and people are very possessive. Yeah. And I, I think, um, the other thing you do is, is, is sort of look ahead and see these things happen coming, right? Be aware that they're coming because, you know, I tend to get in those situations when I'm overtired and I stop paying attention to my environment, um, especially on the bike, you know, but the, uh, if you can see it coming, it's better just to stop and not engage at all. Right. So expect, expect people to kill you. And I think because I grew up riding a motorcycle, I have that sort of burned into me. I'm always looking for that person turn it into my blind side well and you have to be watching everybody else too because i have yet another crazy story um one time i was biking through an intersection and somebody did something like crazy where i had to ride up onto a lawn to get out of the way of what they were doing somebody on the other side of the road out of a car yelled some type of obscenity at the woman that was driving the car who, you know, basically she also drove up on the lawn. Like, I don't have anything to do with this, right? I I, I was not the one that was verbally assaulted to the other person. And I ended up getting chased by the man in the car with the woman with a lead pipe. They went up the road and stopped, and he got out of the car and pulled out a lead pipe and came at me. I'm like, I am not the one. I'm not, I didn't, I'm not the one that yelled at you. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. you're like an innocent bystander. I mean, it's just, like you said, people are so, there's so much frustration in the world right now that like, yeah, anything that you can do to avoid interacting with other people. And I do think about that now and I choose my routes a little bit differently. I try to, I choose lower traffic routes whenever I can, just because um, and it's harder when you're cycling because you're covering so much more distance but you know why get why have the aggravation if i can avoid yeah. motor vehicles i'm gonna do it yeah i try to uh stay on the uh the rail trails as much as possible now especially you know even where i live where they expect to see you in some parts of our country they really don't expect to see runners or cyclists right in the boston area they do expect to see runners at least right because we're out all the time but you know, in, in some parts of the country, it's it's almost like you're you don't have those um, right aways because you're not expected to be there. Like whenever I was down running in Atlanta, you you got to be really careful in Atlanta. They don't expect to see you. And they're always running those red lights on those right turns. I, I was going to say Alabama. Uh, when I was in Alabama, the this is how much, you know, it's an inch over the white line. That's all there is. And yeah. You're out there running and one, it's a hundred degrees out, all right? And it's 110% humidity, and you're out there running, and they're they're like, What the hell is this fool doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. People pull over and go, Hey, buddy, you need help? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like there's you're running on the road at traffic and they they don't expect yeah. like, and there's no no shoulder either. Yeah. Yeah, there's no shoulder. I can't yeah. even imagine what's cycling there. Yeah. It's like, you know. Yeah. And the uh so I've been in marathons and actual in the race and had people clipped by the um the rearview mirrors on the trucks. Yeah. Um, you know, going in the same direction as us, even though on a coned course, right? That mirror sticks out about eight inches and it smacks somebody off the shoulder right in front of me, right? Yeah, and you know, that's an interesting thing with racing too, where sometimes you'll get traffic, you'll get somebody who's super frustrated because the race is causing delays, and they're just, they're in their own world, 
they're they're not focused on all of these other people and what they're doing and they can't if it's it's not something they do. You know, I think it's hard for people who don't run and don't cycle to understand how fragile you feel sometimes when you're out there. You know, I mean, I'm obviously fairly aggressive having been arrested while I was out running once. I, I try to own my space and, and be as big as I can and let people see me. And yeah. I don't see my ground easily, but they're just not, they're just not aware that like, they think you're, they think you're a nuisance. They think that you're, you know, you're trying to make things difficult for them. And it's like, it's the opposite. I just, I just want to be alive when I get done every day, you know? Yeah. And that's, you look, you look at, it's, it's not the first car that typically is a problem. It's the second or third car because they don't see you. Right. Yeah. Because you, like you said, you get big and, and take up a little bit more room when you see the car coming at you. And then they'll give you a foot, but then that next one reacts in the opposite direction, right? They sort of, they lean in. So you got to watch that second car. Well, and you're always looking for people that are on their phone too. I mean, I can't tell you how often I see people go by me and their eyes are in their lap. And it's like, I know they can't see me. I'm hoping they're looking up periodically and that they already saw me, but you know, and then you have people, they're drinking, they're eating, they're doing other things in the car. It's like, I don't want to have to like ride around in a self-driving car because I love to drive, but I think we're probably all better yeah. off. Yeah. I can't see any way that the self-driving cars could drive worse than we do. So yeah. <laughs> that's an easy, easy one for me. Yeah. No kidding. All right, man. What else? What's the, what's the solution to all this? I think it's just pay attention. Everybody's got to own their own space, like you said. You got to own your own your own behavior. Yeah, I mean, you love you love it to be education, and everybody learns and understands what to look for out there. But you know, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. Different environments are so different. You know, different different types of roads, different amounts of size to the road. I think that um, you know, in a lot of countries, you see them really dedicating recreational space to cyclists and yeah. to, um, to runners. I think for cyclists, the way that they implement it here in, in the U.S. is terrible. Like It is. Yeah, I'm a cyclist, but when I see cycling lanes in cities, I, I'm baffled at what the thinking is. Yeah, it's, it's setting you up to die. I've seen yeah. the, in Boston, there's no way. And people die on those. You know, we get a couple of year that, that die in those those cycling lanes. Yeah, and it's because they encourage you to at certain times you have to drive in the cycling lane to get where you're going, right? It's just you'd be better off in the same way that you have one way streets closing some streets off. It would be better for pedestrians and and cyclists to have some streets that are just plain closed to motor vehicle traffic. Yeah, because we don't know how we don't seem to know how to implement safe urban pedestrian. No, it's it's like a half measure. Right. Yeah. And and as a result, it's more dangerous than if you didn't have one at all, because it gives the cyclists sort of the impression that they're safe where they're not. You're sharing that lane with a bunch of Massachusetts drivers. My experience with Boston drivers is they're relatively aggressive. They are. There's just a different set of rules. Yeah. You got to so, know the rules. You know, I don't know. Like, I, I think that we have to protect ourselves as much as we can. And I think that we need to continue to advocate for spaces. I'd love to be able to ride on every road in the country, but it's just not feasible. So give me, if, you, if you're really that annoyed with me being in your travel space, give me a place to go. And it's yeah. got to be robust. It can't yeah. be, yeah. you know, eight miles of trail 
for a cyclist is not doesn't do it. Well, not for not for every cyclist, right? Right. Um, but that's that's changing too. They just put an extension in on one of my local trails that basically made it like forty miles worth of trail from six, right? So there was one highway we had to hop over, and they they finished the bridge last week. So you know, and I think for some cyclists, they need to look at all right. Well, maybe I should get a gravel bike, you know, yeah. so that I can because trails that, that kind of like the what they give us to ride on a lot of times it's a mix of different things, right? It's, it's a little railroad track. It's a little path. There's some dirt, there's some, and you know, you're not taking your triathlon bike out and getting down in the aero bars no. and on these paths. <laughs> you can still get great training in on a gravel bike or I actually do most of my riding on the road on a mountain bike because I want to save my race bike for when I need it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm training uh, with my mountain bike right now. Just, you know, it's like half woods, half road to connect the trails. Um, cause I feel like you get a better strength workout from that, you know? Yeah. And, and you just have more flexibility as to where to go and what, what you want to do. Yep. Yeah. You see a curb coming, just hop it. Yeah. Plus it throws away the urge to like go as fast as humanly possible all the time. When you're on that race bike, you really want to kind of, you want to go out and ride like 17 miles an hour on the race yeah. bike. Yeah. But on the mountain bike, I have an excuse. The thing weighs like, you know, 25 pounds. It's like, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to ride. 30 kilometers an hour for four hours on this thing. All right. So what are, what are your top three lessons from years and years of Ironman training? Be consistent, eat well, and uh, sleep better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always, cause I, I'm actually an Ironman certified coach and, and, you know, the first rule that I say to anybody is like, do not use me as an example for anything that you do in your life because I, you know, I, drink more beer than I probably should. I definitely don't sleep enough. I work out a lot, but you know, I guess more than three rules, the big rule is be happy. You know, if I'm not enjoying it, I would rather train in a way that I enjoy and get whatever result I get on race day. than I'm not Tom Brady. The the guy is like amazing, but I'm not going to eat the way he eats. I'm not going to sleep the way he sleeps. And I know that as an athlete, I would be a little bit more productive if I would put more time into some yeah. of those things. Yeah. You know what? I enjoy my life. Yeah. Yeah. Then suck all the joy out of your life. Yeah. And he's right, enjoying his life too. I'm not saying he's not. Well, he's got the, he's got the supermodel too. So yeah, there's plus and minuses. Um, all right, man, I'll let you go. All right. I appreciate your time today. Yep. Take have care. A great, have a great weekend. Get your, get your long ride in. I will. It was fun talking to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Come on, let's have some fun. Let's go for a run. On being a good ender. So this summer I've been rereading, reconsidering, and refreshing on a certain book. Ah, It's more than a book. It's sort of a body of knowledge. And there's a few of these books or bodies of knowledge that I return to because they resonate with me. They, They seem to work for me. And they apply nicely to my own particular pain points and needs. So I return to them as at points in my life where I have certain stressors or certain challenges that are keeping me from showing up, from being my best self. And that's important because everything you know, everything you've learned, all of your energy and relationships, they mean nothing if you don't have the mental energy to get in the game and apply them. And I find I have ebbs and flows of energy across my days, across my weeks, across my life. 
I've gotten better at recognizing and managing the lows and the highs as I get older. When I feel a low coming on, I can return to one of these tried and true methodologies that work for me, and that helps me mitigate. So usually these low ebbs happen when one or more of my major life areas or challenging change at the same time. It's a stacking up of external stressors. And that's when, for me, it gets hard to show up. That's when I have to return to the internal focus to make sure I'm right in my head, in my attitude, and in my approach. Physician, heal thyself, so to speak. Simplify. Don't look outwards. Look inwards. Build the strength to engage the world in a wonderful way. And it was that way earlier this year when I was having challenges at work. I mean, it's always challenges at work, right? And plus, I'm not able to run. I just feel sometimes a bit like a hamster on a wheel or like I'm slowly roasting over a fire. And at these times of my life and in yours, you have to keep your attention open because I found that the teacher appears when the student is ready. And when I bailed out on the Run, Run, Live podcast 4.0, this is the spot I was in. And the teacher that arrived was a video course from a guy who I've done courses with before. This guy's name is Dr. Glover. You've probably heard him interviewed. If you listen to the same podcast I listened to, he wrote the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And this particular course that I'm taking from him is, and I've taken it before, it's around how being a nice guy gives you certain tendencies that can hamper you in your career. So this isn't really about relationships, it's more about career. For example, you may be hiding from your job instead of doing it. You may be afraid to ask the hard questions for fear of offending someone. You may self-sabotage. You may not show up as your best self. You may feel like you're being taken advantage of. You may make up narratives around the job that basically make you miserable. Think too hard about it. So this training course hit me just at the right time, and I was able to re-engage my job successfully. I'm still working on that. But at the same time, not take it so personally. But that's not the only realization I had. I was also very much impressed with one concept that hit me. Remember, this is right as I'm thinking about, do I want to do this podcast anymore? What am I getting out of it? And this concept is of being a good ender, (laughs) which I will get to. But let me uh, give you some context. The basic nice guy premise is that for a large percentage of men, and I would think this probably applies for women as well, this large block of men and women, they spend so much time trying to be nice that they never get what they want. And that sounds a bit icky and grasping, but the part where it resonated with me and why I picked it up again is that nice guys have the tendency to want everyone to like them. And to get everyone to like them, women, family, bosses, co-workers, they hide their own wants in a way that makes them dishonest. And that's the crux of it. By trying to please everyone, we bury our own value. And we represent ourselves in a dishonest way. This inherently dishonest approach to everyone and everything you do, it makes you, ironically, it makes you less likable. 
So what's an example? Let's say you feel you've been working hard and adding value at your job. A new opportunity comes up that you think you should get, but because you don't want to offend anyone, you don't ask for that opportunity. Then when you get passed over, you get mad because they violated some covert contract that only existed in your head. And this creates all this passive-aggressive behavior, which makes you just makes you miserable and makes everybody else miserable. And it ends up being mostly fear-based behavior. Because you're afraid of offending anyone, you make dishonest choices that don't serve you. Because you're afraid of the consequences, if you fail, you don't try. Because you never tell anyone how you feel, you get run over all the time and then get mad about it. So obviously, this tendency extends to relationships. You can't be mad at your partner for not fulfilling your wants and needs if you're dishonest about what you want and need because you don't want to offend them. The incredible thing about this realization is that if you stop being Mr. Nice Guy, those people that you were trying so hard to please suddenly want to spend time with you. Why? Because they see you as a leader. You now are the only person in the room who has a clear vision of what you want, and that's refreshing and attractive. And in the business context, well, it's profitable and powerful. It's unambiguous. So why? Why is it unambiguous? Because this is an honest approach to living, not being afraid to say no, not being afraid to say what you mean, not being afraid to have your own opinion. All of that gives you power. And power is attractive. It's just common sense. You can't get what you want unless you ask for it. Be yourself. Because there's only one you, and no one else can be you. Don't try to be everybody else. That's the context. Now let's apply this to being a good ender. Personally, I'm always doing five or six different things at a time. It's just how my brain works. I suppose these days I'd probably be diagnosed with something and given pills, but lucky for me, I discovered running 20 years ago. But you cannot do everything, right? This is the risk of being an inveterate dabbler. Eventually the dabbling turns into a hobby, and then into a habit, and then into an obligation. And this is how the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast got for me over the last two or three years. When you're a nice person, you let things go on too long long after they have ceased to serve you because you don't want to offend anyone because you keep going with the relationship after it ceases to serve you that's how it becomes dishonest and that is the cognitive dissonance that you feel that I was feeling every time I produced a show I was being dishonest with you now the other thing people will do nice guys nice people Instead of realizing that the relationship has run its course and ending it well, they will keep going but unconsciously try to sabotage it, starve the relationship, put less energy into it, hoping that somehow it's just magically going to go away without the nice person having to be responsible for ending it. It'll just take care of itself. And this is the passive-aggressive way that nice guys deal with relationships and jobs and things. And it's very unhealthy. It inevitably leads to an incredibly unhealthy ending. So you're not actually avoiding the ending. You're just making it worse and delaying it. So what's worse is that instead of having the honest discussion 
around how the job or the relationship has ceased to serve you, you try to passive-aggressively let it fail. Uh, The point is not whether the relationship is good or bad. The point is that you need to have the courage to end it and to end it well. This is the honest outcome. And you may have heard that honesty is the best practice. And by being a good ender and a clean ender, you can move on to something that serves you better, that serves everyone better. You win, and the people you were passively, aggressively being dishonest with, they win too, because whether they knew it or not, the relationship was not serving them either. And that's the importance of being a good ender. That's the importance of being an honest ender. And there are obviously shades of good and bad here. Nothing is ever clean when you're talking about relationships of any kind. But the thing to look for is the honesty, or rather the dishonesty, right? Are there taboo topics that you're afraid to bring up with your manager, for instance, because you're afraid of how they will react, or are afraid of the hard conversation that will ensue? That's a sign. Are you hiding things or not being 100% open with certain people? Do you find yourself procrastinating or doing anything but that thing in that relationship to avoid that conversation? Is there dread or joy in your heart when you think of that next interaction with that group or that person or that podcast? Maybe it's time for some honesty. Maybe it's time to be a good ender. Maybe it's time to evolve into your next season. Okay, my friends, we have, well, we have uh, gotten arrested, stayed in jail, (laughs) and had to get bailed out on our way to the end of episode 4-478 of the Run Run Live podcast. And this, my friends, is probably going to be the last in the 4.0 series of the Run Run Live podcast. It, uh, I'm going to change the format up, I'm taking some time off, retool the show, and welcome to Run Run Live 5.0. I have also been uh, redesigning my website, runrunlive.com, and it has been simplified to make it more stable and easier to use. I have eliminated the membership stuff, so those of you paying rent should have seen that stop. At some point, I'll move that option. If you still want to support me, I'll move it to a different place. That was just too hard to maintain. Uh, It's a major effort, right? That site is really old. I've been building content for 15 years now. Uh, It needed some serious help. I've been putting it off. There are over 1,400 posts out there, including 500 or so podcast episodes. I split the blog posts up now. I changed this. This is the new way I'm organizing it. Uh, Three categories. One is anything to do with running, endurance sports, I've categorized as endurance. So look for the category endurance. Anything that has to do with business or inspirational or educational type posts, are going to be under a category called inspiration. So look for that. And either way, if you're looking for something specific on any topic or person, you can search. There's a search box. For example, if you want to see one of the dozen or so articles I've written on running form, you can search on form and you'll find 500 million of these things. 
So it's a work in progress. If you're out there poking around, you find errors, let me know. I'll try to fix them. So to take you out, we'll have a little parable here. I'm going to talk about a uh, Japanese term. I work with a lot of Japanese now, and that term is kintsugi. And I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. The question is, why do we spend so much time focused on our failings and flaws? And my mind is always spinning around problems I have to fix, puzzles I have to solve, and all those things. It's always revisiting all those things I've gotten wrong, all those things I've done poorly, all those things that aren't exactly perfect about me and my life. Why? Why, why is this thinking going on? Sometimes it's called the ruminating mind. Our brain spends so much time and energy worrying about mistakes of the past that we have no room for creating the future. And I'm still doing this at 60 years old. We squeeze out the space for living and, more importantly, enjoying life. We don't give ourselves room for that. And the truth is, if we're not making mistakes, we're not living our best life. Mistakes are found at the edge, the edge of our experience, the scary place where we don't have all the answers, and that never changes. So consider this. Mistakes, failures, and shortcomings, they're evidence of abundance. Let me say that again. Mistakes, failures, shortcomings are evidence of abundance. They are evidence that we got out into the world and we strived for something. We strive to do better. We strive to make a difference. We strive to be better. And when you think of your mistakes, instead of ruminating about them, think of them, consider them as your works of art. Revere them as proof of your life and your humanity. Keep them with you as special children, as inspiration. The Japanese have a term for this, kintsugi. It's an art form. So let's say when you break a cup or a vase, what the Japanese will do is they will fill the cracks. They'll put them back together, but they'll fill the cracks with golden glue so that the flaws become part of the art, part of what is different and special about that cup. And these golden veins, they're highlights. They're the praise for those cracks. So learn to celebrate your mistakes as golden veins, as creative gifts. Live in harmony with the flaws and pave your future with a little bit of golden glue. And I'll see you out there.